Turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, we'll begin in verse 17 and read uh, through verse 36. Uh, hear God's word. When we had come to Jerusalem, uh, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went, on, went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he has brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts, because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. This is God's holy word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, and that you would grow us, that you would use this, your word, uh, even through uh, the, the medium of uh, preaching via video uh, to um, gather and perfect the saints, to reach and equip the lost. Uh, we pray that you would um, bring men and women to saving faith in Christ and drive us towards godly living. We pray in Christ's name. 
Amen. So I know the um, courtrooms have been uh, closed lately. I know that there's not been trials going on. I know that you you don't run down to the courthouse on the square and um, participate in, in trials, court. Those things are all closed and have been for the last six weeks or so. Um, but you know, we don't need a courtroom for a trial. I mean, okay, technically we do. We're supposed to need a courtroom for a trial here in the United States. But we all the time put people on trial and find them guilty without ever entering a courtroom, without ever giving them a chance to speak, without ever hearing evidence, without ever even evaluating whether what we're accusing them of is actually true. That's exactly what happens to Paul in this passage. Paul is put on trial. He's found guilty. There's no judge. There's no arbiter. There's no jury. The guilty verdict is fast, and it is furious, and it is intense. I want you to notice, we'll examine this passage, you know, frequently you can kind of work through a passage in order as it comes, and, and the passage will give you an outline. Um, because this is a sham trial of sorts, we're going to evaluate it like we're reading the record of a case. First, what are the charges brought against Paul in this passage? We'll look at verses 20 and 21. Uh, there, Paul and, and Luke and whoever else meeting with James and um, the half-brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And, and we saw back in Acts 15, he participated in the um, Jerusalem Council, and, and much of what he said seemed to sum up uh, the understanding of um, the, uh, the elders, the apostles at that time, and he was a voice uh, of, of reason and authority in the church there. And, and here now, 20, well, however many years later from that, um, he's the leader of the church. He's kind of the, the, the voice of the church, it appears. And James and the elders are meeting with Paul and, and Luke and whoever else uh, are, are in the room. And notice what he says, verses 20 and 21. He's just heard a report of Paul's missionary journey, and he responds with, uh, they glorified God. And then when he speaks, he says, there are a whole bunch of people in this town who have gotten converted from Judaism to Christianity, and they're zealous for the law, verse 20. Listen to the language. They are zealous for the law, and they have been told uh, about you, that you teach all the Jews among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. Notice James uses a lot of they in those verses uh, he seems to be uh, representing at least the voices of the people. He's worried, look, they're going to hear that you're here. They're going to know that you have arrived in Jerusalem, uh, and they think this, and they believe that, and so we need to do something to put them at ease. They believe that Paul, in all his missionary journeys, they believe that Paul in all his travel, as he bounces from city to city, from synagogue to synagogue, he's telling the Jewish Christians, the Christian Jews, the believing Jews, the Jews by birth converted to saving faith in Christ, 
that he's telling them, you don't need Moses, you don't need circumcision, you don't need any of the Old Testament laws, customs, or practices. You can forsake Moses is the language that at least James uses uh, with Paul. They get to ignore, because they're Christians, they get to ignore everything about the Old Testament. That seems to be the accusation. And there's a problem. Paul's got a problem with what James has just said. And it has nothing, this problem has nothing to do with whether their accusation is true or not. The problem is this. James and the elders should have put a stop, a stop to all the whispering long ago. And it seems, to make matters worse, James sounds like he's sympathetic to these Jewish believers in Jerusalem. He almost sounds like he's about to say, and you know what, Paul? I'm worried they might be right. They might actually have something to say here. But James and the elders should have stopped. Um, they failed Paul and they failed um, the church by forsaking their responsibility to maintain the purity, the peace, the unity of the church. You don't, they didn't, they shouldn't have been listening to whispering rumors going around in the back room. They shouldn't have been listening to uh, the, the rumors in the um, the alleyways around Jerusalem. They shouldn't have been letting all these people say all of these things, spread all of these rumors about Paul. And actually, there are several reasons why they shouldn't have. First of all, um, they should have because they've known Paul for 25 years. It's been 25 or so years since Paul was converted and came to Jerusalem and met with the apostles. They should know better. They've known Paul for 25 years. They should be able to say, look, we've been around this guy. We know this guy. He's been back and forth a couple of times on his missionary journeys. He's not teaching that. They knew he wasn't teaching anything like that, and they never put a stop to it. Uh, second uh, reason why they should have, should have put an end to it, um, the Old Testament sets up standards by which you you entertain accusations against someone like Paul. And without two or more witnesses, James should have said, nope, this is, this is outside of the very law you claim to be upholding and contrary to the very law you say Paul uh, is against, uh, which, which says you've, you've got to have witnesses. You've got to have at least two witnesses and you don't have any witnesses. All you have is whispering. All you have is backroom talk. And so James should have dismissed these whispers, these rumors out of hand. And third, this kind of whispering, this kind of going around behind people's backs and telling stories, whether they're true or not, has no place in the church. It's divisive. It's slandering. It's dragging someone's name through the mud. It's a violation of uh, the, the night. We should, we should seek to protect the name of those around us. We have commandments that 
and command just that. You know, when the day comes, when we finally get to where we can actually be together and vote on elders um, and, and vote to particularize and such, uh, one of the vows our, our, our elders, our first elders and every elder thereafter will take is do you promise to strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church? James was failing. James and these elders was, were failing in their responsibility to guard and protect the purity, peace, unity of the church and to protect Paul at the same time. And then as they, as they meet with Paul, they sound like they're saying, Paul, I think, I mean, what they've got sounds, I mean, it's kind of a big deal. And we almost believe them. I mean, we almost agree uh, that, that's, that that's what you're doing. And so there's the, uh, the charges against Paul. Look back at verse 21. Um, and, and let's get to the heart of the, the charges themselves. Notice they, they are zealous for the law. They have been told uh, that you teach the Jews who are among the Gentiles, forsake Moses, no circumcision, um, and you don't have to walk according to the customs, the laws of the Old Testament. Their accusation is that Paul is teaching Jewish Christians in other places not to bother with circumcision or uh, the dietary food laws and things of that sort. Let me, let me, this seems like a good place to clarify something for you. There are three laws in the Old Testament, three kinds of laws, three categories, three classes of law in the Old Testament. There's the civil law, and those are the laws that apply to Israel as a nation. There's the, the ceremonial law, and that would be things like the sacrificial system, and the priest, and the temple, and the tabernacle, and, and um, there, there are all those laws that deal with man's relationship to God and point to the fulfillment in Christ. And if you, if you ladies weren't in um, the Hebrews Bible study, uh, go read Hebrews. And that, that is a lot of the ceremonial law fulfilled in Christ. Here's the Old Testament law. Here's the temple. Here's the tabernacle. Here's the sacrifice. Here's the priest. And here's how Jesus is better than all of those. And those the ceremonial laws are fulfilled in Christ. The third category is the moral law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, though not only found in the Ten Commandments. The moral law is binding on all men in all places at all times. And so the question here is, what's the Jewish Christian's relationship to the Old Testament ceremonial law and customs. The question isn't about the Ten Commandments. The question isn't about the moral law. The question isn't about the civil law and uh, Israel as a nation, as a state, as a, a government. It's a question of what's the Christian's relationship to the ceremonial law as found in the Old Testament. Now, it's not a question about the Gentile Christians. We got to make that distinction too. 
because that was answered back at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and it's answered right here again when James reminds everybody in verse 25, we're not talking about the Gentiles because that was settled before, and he reiterates almost exactly what was written in the letter from the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Do, they, do the Gentiles, how does the Gentile come? This was the question back in Jerusalem Council, back in Acts 15. How does a Gentile, how does a non-Jew come to Christ? Does he have to walk through the doorway of Judaism? Does he have to be circumcised? Does he have to keep uh, the Old Testament uh, laws and customs? And the decision, the answer of the Jerusalem Council was no, he doesn't straight to Christ. Uh, you don't have to pass through Judaism in order to get there. But this question, what about Jewish Christians? What about the parents who have gotten converted or the grandparents who have gotten converted or the, the, the grown-ups who have gotten converted, their children get converted, their children are starting to get married and they're going to raise kids. Do they have to circumcise their son? What about keeping the feast days of the Old Testament? What about um, some of these other features of the law? It's really a question of nationalism. It's really a question of the nationalistic religion of Israel. We have this in the United States. Uh, we, we understand nationalistic religion here in the U.S. perhaps as well as anybody, maybe better than we'd like to admit. Uh, but there's this notion this that's sort of been ingrained in our heads over the years that, that the U.S. is a Christian nation, which it's not, that the U.S. is God's sort of promised land, that, this is, that we are God's people now, also not true. Um, and we have customs and things that stand, um, that we equate nationalistically as part of our Christian heritage, our Christian religion here in the U.S. We have our Bibles, our flags, our guns, and God loves us. Well, if you think your nationalistic religion is going to save you, then you're wrong. A right standing from God doesn't come from being an American. A right standing before God doesn't come from circumcision. A right standing before God doesn't come from growing up in the South, uh, growing up in the Bible Belt, or even the buckle of the Bible Belt, wherever that is, because there are several people that seem to claim I grew up in the buckle of the Bible Belt. A right standing before God is only by grace through faith in Christ. It's not by birth and it's not by American ideals. And it's not by Jewish birth or keeping certain laws and customs. Salvation is all of God's grace found in Christ and him alone. But those are the charges. Paul, they charge you with telling every Jew everywhere, and that's the language when he's sort of grabbed in the temple, everyone everywhere against the people, Israel, the law, Moses, the, the ceremonial law, this place, the temple. And so those are the charges against, against Paul. 
what's the evidence? What evidence do they have for, um, for, for these charges? What evidence exactly do they have? Well, okay, so why is Paul in Jerusalem to begin with? Okay, we know, and we've, we've seen this the last few weeks now, we know he's in Jerusalem because he was constrained by the Spirit to go. He felt like that was what God was calling him to do, that he was supposed to go to Jerusalem. And I've told you before, um, there are commentators even today, preachers today, who say Paul was mistaken, he was wrong, he shouldn't have been there, and this is, you get what you deserve. Um, but he was there, and he was traveling with a host of people. You can go back and read those names back at the beginning of chapter 20. And those people are from all kinds of different places. They're from Ephesus. They're from Corinth. They're from Thessalonica. They're from Philippi. They're from you know, other parts of Greece and Asia. Why exactly are they traveling with Paul? Well, this doesn't actually come up in this chapter. We find out that Paul apparently never got to talk about it. It never, he never got a chance. At least Luke didn't record it for us here. In chapter 24, Paul is, is um, standing trial again, and he will explain why he's in Jerusalem. And he tells us there that he's here in Jerusalem, here in chapter 21, because he's bringing financial aid from predominantly Gentile churches in Asia and Europe. He's, he's bringing money. See, about 10 years before this, there was a famine. Actually, Agabus, whom we saw last week, back in chapter 11, I think it was, uh, prophesied this coming famine. And so the Gentile churches, in a show of love and unity with the church in Jerusalem, they took up a collection, extra, special collection, beyond their regular tithes and offering, um, extra offerings to send to the church in Jerusalem because it was hit the hardest with this famine. And they had needs. They had people they were ministering to. And so Paul was bringing financial relief to the church. Now, you you do realize capital one, you know, what's in your wallet? Paul didn't have a wallet. Paul didn't have a capital one card. He wasn't going to load up a prepaid visa card and show up in Jerusalem and say, here, you know, I went down to Walmart and picked up a stack of prepaid cards and just brought them to you. And, and you can just use that to go get meals at Cracker Barrel or Zaxby's or whatever. He, he wasn't carrying a checkbook. He didn't deposit all the money into, you know, the church checking account. And when he got to Jerusalem, he'd write a check to Jerusalem. They, they didn't have checks then. They carried money in, money was coins. They didn't have paper money. They didn't, they didn't do bills. They were carrying big, heavy paper sacks, big cloth sacks of coins. And they're probably sitting on the floor in front of James and the elders here. He's there to bring financial relief to the church in Jerusalem. So, I mean, it's clear. He, he loves the Gentile churches better than the church in Jerusalem. It's clear he favors the Gentile churches over the church in Jerusalem. He's, 
clearly teaching churches all around the globe that whatever's going on in Jerusalem, it isn't good, and you don't need to support it. You don't need to be a part of it. Just ignore Jewish customs. But not only was Paul not being divisive, he was doing something that he thought would promote unity in the global church between the church in Jerusalem, which is primarily Jewish, and churches in Greece and parts of Asia. Now, I guess that's not evidence of his guilt. What about this? Let's try something different. Look at verses 26 and 27. In verse 26, after James says, look, go to the temple and purify yourself. Let's go through this purification process. Um, seven days. Pay the offering for these four men who are taking a Nazarite vow. And then they can shave their heads and you've paid for their sacrifices. And you notice verse 26, Paul took them in and the next day. I mean, Paul didn't, there's no evidence of him going, hold on, time out. This is a terrible idea. This isn't going to work. And he got up the next morning and he grabbed the four men and said, come on, we're going. We're doing what our session, what our presbytery has told us to do. And so Paul is on his way to the temple. He would have been unclean because he'd come from Gentile nations. So the temple, um, he couldn't have, he was limited as what he can do in the temple because he was unclean having been with Gentiles, coming from Gentile churches and ministering with and among Gentiles. And so he had to cleanse him. He had to go through a purification process in order to uh, be welcomed into the temple like this. And in verses 26 and 27, he's, he's helping pay for these needy men who are making a Nazarite vow. Go read number six, and you can read all about uh, the Nazarite vow. And then you see verse 28. I mean, his being in the temple was the opportunity that that the rest of these Jews and Jewish Christians had to cry out, hey, there's the guy that's been causing so much trouble around the globe. There's the guy who has no regard for our customs, no regard for our people, and no regard for this place. But wait, he was in that place because of their laws with their own people. Well, that, that can't be evidence of his guilt. Yet Paul is on record numerous times saying that circumcision gains you nothing, that circum, circumcision is of no value, and he's right. We are not going to be saved by keeping the law. And, and these Jewish Christians weren't saved by being circumcised. But that's not the same thing as saying, don't get circumcised. You can't. You're wrong. It's unbiblical. It's non-Christian to be circumcised. It simply makes the difference between what you might do as a family or as a nation is one thing, but if you're doing it for ceremonial, religious, relationship with God purposes, it gains you zero. The old covenant sign has been replaced by the new covenant sign of baptism. 
And so any Jews relying on circumcision or diet as a means of gaining God's favor are missing the point, and they are sorely mistaken. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not through circumcision, not through our own works. Paul never told anyone, don't you dare have your son circumcised. In fact, back in chapter 16, Paul, we find Paul with the Jerusalem Council letter in one hand and a knife in the other when he has Timothy circumcised. Timothy was raised with a Jewish mother, a Greek father, hadn't been circumcised um, as a child, as he should have been according to Jewish law. But Paul, because Timothy was going to be ministering among primarily Jewish people, he had Timothy as a young man circumcised, received that sign of the covenant, not as a sign of the covenant, but as a way of being welcomed, as a means of being welcomed by the Jewish people. He knew that they would never let Timothy in the room with them if he wasn't one of them, at least according to the flesh and in their own eyes. Titus, also with Paul, not circumcised. And so Paul's written, he's talked, he's written, and, and his letters to Corinth and Galatia and Rome, they already exist. They, they were written already. Um, they're already out there. And, and they, they are saying circumcision gains you nothing before God, but they don't ever say don't be circumcised because that would be wrong. That's not evidence of his guilt either. How about verse 28? Maybe there's more evidence in verse 28 of Paul's guilt um, in this accusation. He's in the temple. He's paying the, the, um, the fee, the, the sacrifice fee, um, the offering for these four men to take their, um, Naz to take their Nazarite vow. And the argument, he brings Greeks into the temple, verse 28. Now, keep in mind, today, people would have pulled out their phones and would have videoed it. It would have been on Facebook Live and Instagram Live and all over people's Snapchat stories. And there's none of that in this day. But they could look. They could look at Paul and go, well, he's with these four guys who are taking Nazarite vows. I don't see, I mean, we saw Trophimus with him at Starbucks the other day. And so surely he's brought Trophimus into the temple. They just made the assumption that because Trophimus and Paul had coffee together on Thursday, that they must have been in the temple together on Saturday. They just made that assumption. But there's no Gentile with him now. And there's been no one, as crowded as the, as the temple would be, there's been no one to, to see a, a Greek with him in the temple. And for that matter, so the temple set up, there's a series of courts. The outer court is the Gentile court. They're allowed into the outer court. But to get into the next court, you had to go pass through these gates, these big, huge, massive gates. 
And on either side of the gate were signs. And these signs have been attested to by Jewish historians, but also have been discovered um, since these days. The signs basically said, I'm paraphrasing here. This, I didn't write down exactly what they said. Because this is, this is more fun. If Gentiles pass through these gates and go into the next court, you will be put to death. And your blood will be on your head, not on ours. We are absolved of all responsibility if you take it upon yourself to pass into this next court. Big massive warning. No eyewitnesses, no Snapchat, no Facebook, no Twitter, no Instagram, nowhere to be found. And yet Paul gets caught up, grabbed, seized, and carried off as guilty without ever saying a word and without the slightest bit of evidence. Look, you know, it's unfortunate, but this happens in the church all the time. People hear rumors, they catch wind of something, somebody whispers and says, somebody asks a question that really is intended to make you uncertain about something, this really communicate, communicates something. People drum up enough interest, can gather a, a crowd for themselves, and next thing you know, their target is guilty before he ever or she ever has any idea that people are talking. They don't give it a chance to, to speak. They don't get a chance to explain. Nobody ever comes directly to them. This whole thing started with a whisper, with a rumor, and someone got an idea in their head, and they ran with it as though it were completely true, and they never took the time to examine the evidence or to investigate anything. Right? We use, we use phrases. I've had some people mention to me, uh, you know, I've, I've heard people talking about, well, did you put a stop to it? Well, no, I, let, I listened. I gave them a chance to speak and I told them that I would come and talk to you. That's not, you stop it. You put an end to this kind of whispering and this kind of backbiting. You stop and say, hold on, time out. And unless and until you go speak to that person, I'm not listening to another word. And Paul, with all this evidence stacked together, oh wait, none of that evidence was enough to find him guilty of anything. Well then, what's the verdict? We've seen the charges, we've seen the evidence. What's the verdict? Surely the verdict turns out okay with all of this evidence lacking any foundation whatsoever. Well, verse 30 and 31, then all the city was stirred up. People ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune. And the language there is they actually were beating, stomping, kicking him, and they would have killed him. They, he would have been dead right there. I mean, I, out of the temple, presumably out of, out of even the Gentile court, um, but still on temple grounds and temple property. Here's the thing. Jewish law 
said that if Paul is guilty, he was to be taken outside of the city and stoned. Well, now who has no regard for the people, the place, and the law of Israel? Now who has no regard for the customs of the Old Testament? These people took it upon themselves to punish Paul for defiling the temple and in the process defiled the temple while they were punishing Paul for defiling the temple. You know, it's interesting how blind we can be to our own sin. And certainly in violation of our own man-made laws, when in the midst of attacking someone for something that may or may not even be true, these people, for all of their self-righteousness, for all of their, we're going to take matters into our own hands and solve this problem of Paul, because all the things he's been teaching, everyone, everywhere, verse 27, I think it is, um, that's wrong. And so we're going to become trial, I mean, jury and judge, and we're going to hand down the verdict and we're going to execute the sentence and we're going to do it quickly and, and we're going to do it thoroughly. And these Jewish Christians weren't righteous at all. They were merely self-righteous. Paul, of course, is innocent of the charges that they bring against him. He wasn't innocent. Paul would tell you he wasn't innocent. Paul would tell you, I uh, called himself the chief of sinners. He knows he's violated God's law, and that he sins, sinned daily in thought, word, and deed. He would have quoted the confession, of course. And some even accuse him here of, of capitulating to pressure, uh, even in this passage, that he was violating his own teaching on circumcision and sacrifice. I think the question at hand is, Paul, clarify for us what the Jewish Christian's relationship is to the law. And Paul's answer is, and always has been, and would be, if you're trying to keep the law for your salvation, you can't, and you won't. If you're trying to merit God's favor through circumcision and dietary laws and keeping feast days and taking the Nazarite vow and doing other things to, to gain God's favor, you can't do it. Look to Christ. Christ alone has secured God's favor for his people. That has and always would be Paul's answer. But Paul never says, look, if you want to you have your son circumcised because he's Jewish and you want to do that as a, a, a sign of belonging to the nation of Israel, that, that's fine. That's, that has nothing to do with ceremonial intent of, of relationship to God. Their question, what's the Jewish Christian's relationship to the law? Paul, I believe, is found not guilty. The verdict was guilty. They grabbed him, they dragged him off, and thankfully there was a, a Roman barracks right next door to the on the temple grounds ready to, to participate in a situation like this, and they were able to quickly be there to save Paul's life, at least in that moment. 
me make a couple of applications from this passage. First is this, you and I are guilty. Uh, we're, we're guilty of getting caught up in whispering stories and whispering campaigns against people when there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever, no chance for them to speak. Uh, you and I are called to guard and protect the name, the reputation of our brothers and sisters in Christ, to give them the benefit of the doubt. Always assume the best in others and the worst in yourself. And if you do that, you'll never have this kind of relational conflict. We don't drag people away and, and beat them for something we think that maybe it's possible they could have possibly maybe done. Instead, go to people. Go and have the conversation one-on-one. -on -one. Ask the question. Find out. Keep those matters one-to-one, -one, as small a circle as possible. Second, sort of connected to that, is the fact that you and I need to learn to deal with the log in our own eye before we deal with the speck in the lives of others. These, these Jewish Christians are profaning the temple. They're breaking their own laws in the process of accusing Paul of profaning the temple and violating their own laws. Think how often we are blind uh, to the log in our own eye. In their minds, they were perfectly justified and, and to, to arrest Paul and to punish him and to, to carry out judgment and we're unwilling to give Paul the same benefit of the doubt. You and I would do well to be slow to speak, slow to become angry, and quick to listen. A third application. I think there's a pattern in our country today to confuse um, American nationalism with biblical Christianity. Maybe you're not doing that as an individual. Maybe that's not an issue in, in our particular church or in the church here in our community. But there are certainly believers everywhere, Americans everywhere, who are confusing American nationalism with biblical Christianity. Being Americans means we do certain things in certain ways, and if you don't like it, you can leave. Oh, and those things make God happy with us. Your nationality doesn't save you. Your heritage doesn't save you. Your last name doesn't save you. Your presidential candidate of choice doesn't save you. Being pro-life doesn't save you. Being pro the destitute, the poor, the outcast, the, the down and out doesn't save you. Salvation is found in Christ and him alone. If you'll turn in faith to Jesus and believe on him, trust in his life and death, in your place, you too will be saved. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, the assurance of forgiveness, but that, that assurance is grounded in Christ and him alone, not in our obedience, not in keeping whatever Old Testament laws you actually gave, and certainly not in keeping the laws we make up that, that we think make a good Christian that have nothing to do with biblical Christianity whatsoever. Father, we pray that you would grow in us uh, a deeper hatred for our own sin, 
and a love for others. Uh, teach us to be patient and to listen, uh, to be slow to speak, slow to get angry, but quick to listen to others. And Father, we pray that we would stay judgment, that we wouldn't pass judgment when it is your place to do so and not ours. We pray all of these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. We're going to uh, close with a song uh, that sings of the, uh, the greatness of the church, uh, particularly sort of in light of the continuation of the Old Testament church into the New Testament church, the glorious things spoken of the church of Christ.